Welcome to the June 18th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Nehemiah chapter 10 through 11 and Acts chapter 4, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. Uh, If you have any questions about anything in the Old Testament or New Testament reading assignment, please email me at mattellis1997 at gmail.com. I may answer it in the next podcast. Acts 4. Peter and John had healed a man and now were in the temple area. Uh, They were telling people about Jesus and this got the attention of the religious leaders and that's where verses 1 and 2 pick up. It says, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, the religious leaders were all about themselves and their institution, and they didn't want someone else stepping into their territory. A month and a half or two earlier, uh, they had worked to put Jesus on the cross, and now they were trying to shut up his disciples. Listen to verse 3. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. Well, the word seized in the original language means to lay hands on. So they actually put their hands on Peter and John and manhandled them. They disrespected them in front of the crowd, and they tried to demonstrate their dominance. Peter and John were kept in custody overnight. Well, even though the disciples were taken into custody... People were still getting saved. We read that in the very next verse, in verse 4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This reveals that getting saved isn't merely a decision. It is the joy of forgiveness, the happiness of enjoying our God, and the hope of heaven that causes people to be willing to die for Jesus. People who abandon Jesus when the heat gets turned up in society don't know what it's like to have hearts filled with joy in our relationship with him. These people had seen Peter and John taken off, and they were going to be in front of the the court the very next day, and people were still getting saved. That tells us that there is something about salvation that is greater than the persecution that they would risk by affiliating with Jesus. Well, the next morning, Peter and John woke up still in custody. They probably didn't know what would happen to them on this day, so I suspect they'd spent much time praying throughout the night. Listen to verses 5 and 6. It says, The next day the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. So even though the word isn't used This list of religious leaders seems to point to at least the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin and maybe a few others there as well. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men, Pharisees and Sadducees, and it was overseen by the high priest. This group of men condemned Jesus as worthy of death, and now they were trying to bully Jesus' followers. Verse 7. After they had Peter and John stand before them, 
They began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? So the Sanhedrin knew exactly who Jesus was. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the Sanhedrin had confronted Jesus on multiple occasions over the previous three years. Members of the Sanhedrin had sent Jesus to Pilate and then called for his death. Probably the high priest looked down his nose at Peter and John and asked them a question just to get the proceedings started. By what power or in what name have you done this? They know that it's Jesus, but they're getting the conversation going. Well, all eyes moved to Peter and John. What would they say? Would they demonstrate cowardice? Would they cave under the pressure of being reprimanded by the Sanhedrin? Listen to verse 8. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. So what does it mean that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? It simply means that the Lord stepped into the driver's seat in Peter's mind and took charge. Peter didn't go into a trance. He didn't speak in tongues. In fact, it may have been that he didn't feel anything different within himself at all as he was filled with the Spirit. So how might it happen that, uh, that he was filled with the Spirit? When we look at Ephesians 5.18, it tells us that it is our responsibility to, using the, the tense of the verb in Ephesians 5.18, to be being filled. That we are commanded to, in the present, continuous present, be filled, to be being filled with the Spirit. It's our responsibility. So God desires to use us, but we must... Do our part. We must repent of any known sin, express our heartfelt conviction that we desperately need the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit helping us, and we'd better be spending much time in God's Word because the sword of the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. We have got to get God's Word into our hearts so that the Spirit can use it. So as Peter and John were making their way to the Sanhedrin that morning, they may have been saying the sort of prayer that they had been expressing all night may have been something like, Lord Jesus, we belong to you and nothing can happen to us except what you allow. We realize that we could very well mess up the opportunity to speak to those who will interrogate us. So help us, Holy Spirit. Give us the words to say and help us to shut our mouths when you don't want us to talk. Bring scripture to our minds so we can proclaim your word to those against us. Help us exalt you, Jesus, and may it be possible that some would hear the gospel that we will proclaim today and that they will be saved. I just wonder if they prayed a prayer something similar to that. Now we reach the moment of truth. The Sanhedrin has asked the leading question. It's time to speak, and Peter calls for the attention of the Sanhedrin and then proceeds with great boldness. Listen to verses 9 and 10. If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Peter's boldness comes through loud and clear in these words. His confidence in his God is off the charts. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in him. He's filling him. He's controlling him. 
Essentially, what Peter says in these words that I just read is, you know, I'm going to kind of ad lib a little bit, but essentially what Peter is saying is this. He says, I can think of at least a few sinister reasons you've brought us before you. But if the real reason is that you want to know how this lame man was healed, then listen to me. He was healed by the man you killed. You remember his name, don't you? He's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You called for him to be crucified. But let me tell you that he isn't dead. He's alive and well, and he's the one who provided the power for this man to be healed. Well, Peter isn't done. The Holy Spirit has brought a verse to mind, and Peter will quote it. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Listen to this. This Jesus, Peter says, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter saw in that passage that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of those words. Jesus who his people had rejected, had become the very thing that the whole building was built on. He had been rejected by his people, and yet he is the foundation stone. So what is the building that's being built on him? It's his kingdom, which is made up of everyone who trusts in him for eternal life. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's what's being built. Then Peter quickly goes for the jugular, going back to his words. He goes for the jugular. The 71 men were probably getting offended by Peter's boldness in their presence. He said, you're the one that killed Jesus. He's the one who healed this man. They're getting a little upset. They wanted him to cower as he stood before them, but it's about to get real when they hear what Peter says next. Listen to verse 12. He said, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So do you see what Peter did? He took the conversation from how did this man get healed to how are people saved? Peter answered their question and then jumped right to the gospel. Peter knew that the folks before him were confident that they were going to heaven, although they were not. Yet they were relying upon their righteous deeds to get them to heaven. We know that that's not how you get to heaven, but that's what they were relying upon. They were relying upon their outward compliance with the law of Moses, even though the honest ones among them knew that their motives for obedience were impure. But those men in the Sanhedrin, at least most of them, resolutely refused to acknowledge that Jesus had anything to do with salvation. They hated him and were glad that he was gone. Yet Peter was now saying that Jesus was the only way to the Father. He didn't say that Jesus was a way. He boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the way. Once again, listen to what he said. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people by which they must be saved. Well, Peter, filled with the Spirit, owned that meeting. If Peter had allowed pride to settle into his heart, the Spirit would have given the steering wheel back to Peter and disaster would almost assuredly come. But Peter remained humble, depending upon the Spirit within him, and the Spirit of Christ shut those pseudo-religious leaders down. We know that at least one of 
the Sanhedrin, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, a man named Nicodemus, was a relatively secret follower of Jesus. Maybe there were other there was another one or two, but the rest of them would have been furious that Peter, a man that they had taken captive, refused to cower before them. They had no choice but to realize that something made him different. Verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they watched Peter and John and could see that he stood his ground. He was, Peter specifically, the, the, the spokesman, he was courageous, even though virtually anyone else in his shoes would have been terrified. They realized that he, didn't, he hadn't received a formal education and was certainly not trained in a rabbinical school, and yet he was passionately and persuasively speaking theologically about Jesus and salvation. Friend, boldness comes from being a student of God's Word, having a heart for the Lord, and a submitted life that is available to the Holy Spirit. They were bold, and so can you and I be. Some might blow this off by saying that Peter must have simply had a strong personality. Maybe he tended to be courageous when times got tough. <laughs> and then we would tell them of the early morning when Peter was so scared that he denied Jesus three times in a matter of hours from when he had recently promised Jesus that he would die for him if need be. Peter wasn't naturally courageous. God's Spirit and a few other factors enabled him to stand courageous in front of men and who could have ordered his death. And the same Spirit that enabled Peter to be courageous can enable you and I to be courageous too. Honestly, the 71 men who had been staring these two men down were now speechless. The Sanhedrin was speechless. Verse 14, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Wow, 71 guys, and they can't think of anything to say. Two guys have beat him out. The Sanhedrin now needed to have a discussion. The interrogation of these two men didn't play out like they thought that it would, so they needed to get rid of Peter and John so that they could talk and think. Get them out of the room for a minute. Verse 15 and 16. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they, the, the Sanhedrin, conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these two men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John out of their presence and then talked about what they should do with them. They acknowledged that a boatload of people had seen the undeniable miracle. What were they to tell Peter and John? How could they not appear weak in front of these two men? How could they save face? Verses 17 and 18. They're still discussing among each other. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, the high priest and his mob, they did. They tried to act tough. The only thing they could think of was to bully Peter and John and demand that they didn't talk anymore in the name of Jesus. But with the boldness that Jesus' disciples had evidenced in their presence, they all knew that their words were empty. The Sanhedrin 
was like an old lion without teeth and claws. Well, Peter and John weren't playing along. They wouldn't comply. Instead, they made it clear exactly what they would continue doing. Verses 19 and 20, 19 through 21. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Those two verses ought to be underlined in your Bible. You ought to highlight them and put the principle into your memory because all of Jesus' followers are to think this way. Here's the principle. There's a law, uh, there, there is a law that society or others put on us, and there is God's law, right? So there's two laws, the law of the land and then God's law. Ideally, we're able to obey both of them simultaneously. Ideally, we live in a place where we're able to obey God's word and the laws of the land simultaneously. Yet, in a broken world, there will almost certainly be times when we cannot obey both. So if we are required to do something that God's word forbids, then our decision is clear. We will obey God. We will disobey society's laws and accept the consequences from society. So Peter was essentially saying, okay, you've told us not to talk about Jesus, but we have been commanded by our heavenly king that we must go into all the world and make Jesus followers. And in order to do that, we must talk about Jesus. So since you're telling us not to talk about Jesus, and Jesus told us to talk about him, we're going to disobey you and we're going to obey Jesus. That's what Peter and John said. Well, Peter and John demonstrated courage and refused to cower, so the Sanhedrin ran out of things to say and do. And with their tail tucked between their legs, they made some threats against Peter and John and sent them away. Listen to verses 21 and 22. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So what was holding the Sanhedrin back? What kept them from moving to kill Peter and John as they had done with Jesus? It was because of the crowds. The Sanhedrin realized that the crowds would turn on them if they did anything to Peter and John. It quite possibly could be that there were some in the crowd, or maybe many in the crowd, that had had a chance to reflect on the the crucifixion of Jesus and how the Sanhedrin had mindlessly, just vehemently, called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And there may have been within the crowd many who were sick of the Sanhedrin and what they had done and the injustice of it all. It may even be that many of those disciples had actually seen Jesus after he rose from the dead, and so the Sanhedrin knew that they'd better not mess with Peter and John. Not while all of of these crowds were here observing the day of Pentecost. But honestly... As we look at this, they they didn't do it because of the crowds. They didn't move against Peter and John because of the crowds. But honestly, this, this was all from the Lord. He had orchestrated the circumstances so that his messengers would be safe until it was time for them to be persecuted and then die. You know, they weren't going to be persecuted and they weren't going to die until God had willed for it to happen. 
God was overseeing every single detail. Nothing could happen to those men, and nothing can happen to you and me without God willing it or allowing it. Well, Peter and John were not loners. They were part of a growing Christian community, so they wanted to tell the community what the Sanhedrin said and what God did. Listen to verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Well, why might Peter and John have told the community about all of this? Why why they bother going to them and retelling the story? Probably because they wanted the Christians to realize that while they lived in a culture that killed Jesus, they had nothing to fear as long as they relied upon the Lord. They might have told their fellow believers, folks, we aren't we weren't scared, and we know it was God giving us that courage. The Holy Spirit filled us, and we weren't scared. Their words were intended to encourage fellow believers in a time when fear and anxiety may have been running rampant. When the fellow believers heard this story, they had to pray together. Verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. So what were they saying in that verse? Well, they were celebrating the fact that they had nothing to fear. God, who was watching over them, was so infinitely powerful that he had created the heavens, he had created the earth, he had created the sea and all of the animals. And a God so powerful, who had also compassionately watched over them, made fear and anxiety unnecessary. Well, they kept praying. Listen to verses 25 and 26. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Did you catch what they said about how the Bible was written? This is, I'm I'm quoting, you said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father, David, your servant. So it's through the Spirit by the mouth of our father, David. So they acknowledged that the Bible was written by men, but had the Holy Spirit as its ultimate author. They referred to both the Holy Spirit and David. And we believe this too, and it's been believed throughout the church age, that 40 some odd men, about 40 men, wrote the scriptures, but ultimately the Holy Spirit is the author of scripture, of all scripture that we have. Well, as they continue to pray, they acknowledge that the Holy Spirit through David had written Psalm, uh, and this is what they quoted, verse 1 and 2, and they quoted it. Uh, Psalm 2 is a psalm in which the people of God called upon the enemies of the king, the Old Testament king, to abandon their plots against him. Their attempts, the enemy's attempts to harm him, were futile because God had decreed that he would be king. The saints in Acts 4 clearly saw that this pointed to Jesus. Even though his enemies had come against him, their actions accomplished nothing except to fulfill God's plan. Well, then we get to a couple of verses in their prayer that you should also underline and reflect upon. It shows once again how people have the freedom to make their choices, yet even as mankind exercises his free will, God is accomplishing his will and purpose. Listen to verses 27 and 28 and listen to where it talks about a person's free will and listen to where it talks about God's sovereign free will. Verses 27 and 28. 
and this is, again, part of their prayer. For, in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So let me ask you a question. Did Herod pray and ask God what uh, God's will was for Jesus? Of course not. Did Pilate pray and ask and, and seek God's will? Of course not. Those men were wicked and they worshipped pagan gods, and yet when they made their individual choices, sinful as they were, evil as they were, they were doing exactly what God had determined to be done as it accomplished God's purpose. Friend, you and I have the ability given to us by God to make our choices. We can make good choices and we can make bad choices. If we make good choices, we're free to reap the benefits. If we make bad choices, we're free to reap the consequences. Yet regardless of what choices we make and act upon, absolutely nothing we do can mess up God's sovereign will. That is the truth that can provide such comfort to Jesus' followers who reflect deeply upon it. Well, let's get back to the prayer of the first century saints. Uh, they now ask God to take notice of the threats made by the Sanhedrin. The implication is that God would continue to protect his followers as they continue to let his followers, uh, let his power flow through them. Listen to verses 29 through 30. And now, Lord, consider their threats. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what would it be like, friend, if we were so convinced of God's power and compassion for us? Might we feel less fear and more boldness to stand up for him? Well, that's what happened to those praying saints. Listen to verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. God clearly heard their prayer and answered it. The place in which they were gathered experienced a mini earthquake. Plus, they all joined Peter and John in speaking God's word with boldness as they were filled with the Spirit. Well, as the chapter comes to an end, we read that the disciples in Jerusalem loved each other enough to sacrifice to meet each other's needs. Listen to verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Well, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, this is not communism. Communism is when the government steals from the wealthy and gives to the poor. That's not at all what's going on in this text. The leaders of the church weren't taking anything by force. Instead, those early Christians had full control of their own property. It was only as they were willing to part with some of their personal property to help out the needy that they did so. It wasn't forced. It was a free will offering. Oh, before getting back to this matter of sharing with each other, Luke tells us that the disciples were not merely focused inwardly. They weren't simply meeting each other's tangible needs. They were also seeking first the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. 
The Lord had answered their prayers. They were speaking boldly. They were getting the gospel message out. And then we read once again in closing that they were sacrificially meeting each other's needs. Listen to verses 34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. So the Christians were selling property, taking the proceeds, and bringing that money to church to disperse as the leadership saw it. There was a plurality of elders, pastors. So this was not a one-man decision. They, there, there's no such office in the, in the New Testament as a lead pastor. There was no such thing. That's a made-up title. It's an okay title, but it was a made-up title. In, in the New Testament, we primarily see a, a plurality of elders where there's more than one pastor, one teaching pastor, but many that are leading as pastors of the church. And so there was a plurality of elders, so this was not a one-man decision. This was a group that was overseeing the funds, and so this provides accountability, right? And also wisdom as to how the money is to be dispersed. Well, multiple men, namely the apostles, were able to bless poor church folks with money that had been given to them by the wealthy. And the wealthy had the good feeling in their heart as they helped others, and the poor saints felt gratitude in their hearts, knowing that they were valued and loved by their church family. We're now introduced to a man named Barnabas. He will go on missionary journeys in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul, but every character in a story has to be introduced. Barnabas' introduction reveals that he, was, uh, he sold some property, some of his own property, and brought the proceeds to the church. Listen to verses 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, was it wrong for Barnabas to give this gift publicly, to lay it at their feet? This was a public act. Was it wrong for him to give it publicly? Not necessarily. Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount of the danger of doing things publicly because our hearts could do something good and yet desire the applause of our peers, which makes it sinful. So bringing a specific amount of money to church and giving it publicly can be dangerous. But I believe that Barnabas may have had a purpose in giving his money in this way. I think he may have given it publicly to prime the pump. I think he might have given so that others could see and be motivated to give as well. Well, in the next chapter, there's going to be two people who saw the public adulation that Barnabas may have received, and they wanted the affirmation for themselves. And we're going to get to that in Acts chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live in a different culture than those first century saints, yet we need boldness just as they did. Help us, Lord, to seek to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then to apply those principles. It was only as your Spirit was completely filling and guiding those saints that they were able to do the things that mattered for eternity with boldness. I desire, we desire to follow in their steps. So help us, Lord, to live in the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at mattsmusings.net and I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.